The Athletic. Hello, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's Mark Carey here. You'll notice this is not the voice of Ali Maxwell, but do not fear. I'm very much just alone signing in the big chair. No option to buy. Ali's going to be back with us very, very soon. Now, you might have noticed there's a World Cup going on. Uh, the first round of fixtures are complete and true to tactics pod form. We're going to be opening up a World Cup notebook to reflect upon some themes, some observations and some standout moments. And to help me with that, we've got none other than the stalwart member of the tactics pod. It's Michael Cox, who is out in Qatar as we speak. Uh, Michael, how are you enjoying your your new surroundings? Yeah, it's been good. I mean, it's been very frantic trying to rush off to multiple games in, in one day, but it's a unique World Cup in the sense that you can do that. So, yeah, it's been good. Um, I've only been here two full days, but I've seen two games in each of those days. Um, and yeah, I haven't seen any of the real stinking nil-nils so far, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> we'll be covering it all very shortly. Uh, joining Michael is one of the busiest men I know. It's Ahmed Walid. He's back on the pod. Ahmed, welcome back. Hey, Mark. I've seen some of the stinking nilnils that Michael uh, have missed. Uh, yeah, there were some enjoyable games, like um, some huge upsets and close upsets. But yeah, enjoying a bit. Other games are too slow. But yeah, four games a day, definitely too much. Michael, you said obviously you've been to, to some of the games already. I wanted to know what the, I guess, the atmosphere has been like in the games that you have attended. Obviously, watching it through the television is a wholly different experience. What's, what's the atmosphere been like? Pretty mixed, I would say. I've been to a couple of games where there's been a, a noticeable amount of empty seats, um, particularly um, the Switzerland game yesterday, I think, was uh, probably the best example of that. Switzerland against Cameroon, which was in a kind of out-of-town stadium in the south, so I don't think attracted many kind of neutral fans who are here for other teams, um, and neither Switzerland nor Cameroon have, have brought a particular particularly high number of people um, but on the positive side of things I was at the, the Canada game yesterday when they were sorry the day before yesterday when they were uh, pretty unlucky I thought to lose to Belgium and, and their support was fantastic and actually my plane over from London I think was about 50% Canadians um, mm. which was great to see and the, the Japanese support as well I know there's been lots of coverage of them sweeping up after themselves uh, as usual after the full-time whistle but during the game itself they've got a lot of fans here and uh Obviously, they really enjoyed that victory over Germany. Indeed, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely come on to that. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I think it's it's safe to say that we're not going to go through every single game played so far um, because we'd, of course, be here all day. So instead, we're going to slice up our chat thematically. We're going to start, I think it's a good place to start, is with the, the formality victories, shall we say, um, among some of the favourites of the tournament. We'll start with uh, England, comprehensive 6-2 winners against Iran, which is no mean feat really in the context of some of Iran's uh, performances in, in qualifying and in the context of some of the other results. Michael, you noted England's fullbacks as key to their success on the day. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because they were playing against a side that was playing kind of 5-3-2, sometimes 5-4-1. And I thought there was a marked contrast, uh, contrast to the way that England played against Scotland in the Euros last year, where they were playing against a similar system and clearly the two fullbacks on that day had been told just don't advance don't overlap don't push forward into the final third and of course that was a game where England basically were happy with the point but this game I thought the fullbacks were were really key to the way England played I think Trippier 
um, has always done well for England, you know, contributed a, a really important goal in the semi-final of the World Cup four years ago, created the opener for Luke Shaw in the Euros final. And I think coming into this tournament, it's probably the most informed England player. He's been so good for Newcastle. And I think England, they really dominated in the early stages by going down the right. I think some of the rotations down that flank were, were quite useful. Sometimes it was Trippier coming inside and, and Saka um, kind of dropping deep to receive, which isn't the type of thing we've really seen too much from England before. And of course, the you know the the slight outlier was the fact that the opening goal came from a, across from Shaw from the left, um, and I think he had a pretty good game as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think if you pick a man of the match, I, I'd be in the Jude Bellingham camp. I think like most people, um, I think he was absolutely sensational. But tactically, I thought the fullbacks were really vital throughout the game. And it's been the you know one of the main areas of debate about who should play right back. I think at the start of this year, maybe Trippier would have been fourth choice for that spot behind Walker and James and Alexander-Arnold. But um, I think he's deservedly in the team and yeah, played very well. And it looks from from what we're, we're seeing that Southgate's going to go with the, the same team, uh, an unchanged side against uh, the United States men's team uh, later today. So other comprehensive winners uh, within this category. France had a bit of an early scare, but were comfortable 4-1 winners in the end against Australia. Uh, Spain comfortably uh, beating Costa Rica 7-0, record-breaking 82% share of possession there. Um, Brazil last night, 2-0 win, but it wasn't quite a thrashing, but I think I don't think Serbia had a shot on target across the, the full game. I was going to say 90 minutes, but I can't say that, and we'll come on to why. Um, Ahmed, can we take anything tactically from these, I'm going to call them early thrashings, um, or do we just put it down to just a golfing quality in, in the first round of games? I think for Brazil, it was a golfing quality. Like, I expected more from Brazil. In the first half, I felt that, like, Serbia's off-ball organization limited Brazil. Like, they had a close shot from Rafinha, but that was it in the first half. Like, some shots from outside of the box. In the second half, like, their quality dominated. Like, Neymar, Vinny on the left. I thought Casemiro had a great game. But, yeah, if we came on to France and Spain, I know, like, 7-0 sounds like uh, men against boys. But yeah, I was really impressed with uh, Spain's possession game. Of course, the rotations from the front three, um, Asensio dropping. I know Luis Enrique uh, went on stream and said it's not a false nine, but this is just a linguistic problem. It's it's what it's what he does in terms of dropping and linking, with Olmo going and being behind, as we've seen in the fir- in the first goal. And we've also got um, Gavi and Pedri. I think they are great. So before uh, Spain had Koki, I think uh, on the right, I think Gavi offers a better solution going forward in terms of runs of the ball, in terms of his intensity on the pressing. Pedri just controls the game from the left alongside Busquets. So these two, like they are two faces of the same coin and they work perfectly for Spain. And today in this morning, uh, John Muller has a piece on them. It was a great read. If we went to France, I really enjoyed their wing play combinations. So we've got uh, Mbappé on the left, Dembélé on the right, but the combinations are really good with uh, on the left when Teo came on instead of Lucas with uh, Rabiot or Chomeni dropping to cover. And also in, in the final third, there were many solutions. So if they put them in 1v1 situations, the dribbling is great. Uh, also France did lots of cutbacks. If, we, if they want to do crosses, Giroud's there. So many solutions in terms of uh, final third when we go to the wing play. And also how we go to the wing play, we've seen the, the great distribution from uh, Upamecano and uh, Konati. Like, for example, the fourth, fourth goal. But throughout the game, the distribution was great. It's interesting what you say about Spain as well. Michael, how much do you think that 
going into the tournament, obviously the quick turnaround from club football to international football, that having, thinking about Spain's midfield, Gavi, Pedri and Sergio Busquets, obviously three players who play their club football together at Barcelona, how much do you think that counts in terms of just that quick turnaround, being able to have such familiarity within your international side going into the tournament rather than, you know, compare it with summer tournaments where you do have that ability to build a bit of cohesion as a team. Do you think that kind of counts for a little bit more here? Yeah, I think that's probably a good point. And I think it's also worth pointing out, I mean, Spain, they've always looked, under Luis Enrique, they've always looked very cohesive. And I think in terms of shape and understanding and, you know, what they do between the boxes, I I think they're the best European side by quite a long way. I think we saw that at the Euros last year. I think it's a good argument they're actually the best team at the Euros. I mean, they lost to Italy on penalties. Um, but I thought we're, we're dominant in that semi-final. So yeah, I, I think it's a good good point about this tournament. I think it is a factor. And I think some of the games we've seen first round, I mean, they haven't all been bad, but some of them almost feel like a pre-tournament friendly. You know, the, the teams just haven't had that game to kind of get in the get in the groove. And um, yeah, Spain obviously very much an exception to that. That neatly brings me on to, to my next sort of part of, of this podcast of from the formality results into more of the, the early surprises so far, shall we say. I want to talk about comebacks and World Cup shocks. And I guess my question before I get into it is that do you think because of that quick turnaround that there's more likely to be shocks in the first round of fixtures because they feel a bit more like preseason friendlies, as you say, there's not enough opportunity to build cohesion. So if ever there was a time for a an underdog to to gain an advantage, then even within the tournament, the first round of fixtures would be it because there's such little training time to get to that first game. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Again, that's a good point. It's such a unique tournament in terms of the lack of preparation. And we have seen a, a few of the big sides, I think, just just not hitting the ground running. Um, I mean, even France, I know they ended up winning, but I thought they started really poorly first 20 or 30 minutes. I suppose the, the funny thing is that in the cases of both Argentina and Germany, they were 1-0 up at half-time. And it's, I mean, it's unusual you have shocks of this magnitude, but it's even more unusual to see a comeback shock. I mean, usually it's a kind of part the bus job and maybe pinch a goal on the break or a counter-attack. But, you know, these sides had to had to rally. They had to find a plan B and they had to push forward and actually dominate the game. Um, and I thought Japan in particular did that really well. Oh yeah, we're certainly going to come to that. I'm just going to go back to Group B before we do, um, because Ahmed, you you wrote about this, uh, the Wales and USA game on the same theme of of comebacks. It was a highly enjoyable match for different reasons. Uh, USA out the traps pretty well in in the first half. Wales ended the game far stronger of the two. I, I think it's fair to say, uh, Michael. I know you've had this same theme of a game of two halves to, to use the cliche, but Ahmed, would you say that this this really was that? It's, it's not exactly a chalk, but it's a comeback. In, in the first half, I thought um, USA's pressing was great. They pressed in the 4-3-3, a narrow one, uh, with the white players on Wales' white centre-backs and Josh, Josh Sargent dropping on Ampadu. And behind that, we've got Weston McKinney and Musa on um, Ramsey and Harry Wilson. They did a great job of denying progression into the centre of the pitch for Wales. And even when Wales tried to reach uh, their wing backs, whether Connor Roberts or Nick Williams, we saw Musa and McKenney moving out there with Adams covering for them in the center of the pitch. So yeah, all these uh, denials of uh, progression meant that uh, Wayne Hennessy had to go long a couple of times. I think he went long 13 times in the first half. And one of those, USA won the second ball, and then on the transition, they got their first goal. 
in the second half, it totally changed because um, Rob Page brought on Kiefer Moore. They changed the approach. They were more direct into Kiefer Moore, who I think was the best player in, in the second half on the pitch. And actually, the the penalty the that Bale got came from a direct ball from Connor Roberts, but not to more to Brennan Johnson, who came on when uh, Rob Page mo- moved to a more of a back four. So yeah, I thought it was a great game in terms of a game of two halves and we've got a comeback. And actually, Johnson could have won it at the end when Roberts played a long ball into Moore and then Moore held it up and backheeled it into Johnson's path, but he shot it straight at Matt Turner. And in terms of, of Wales, do you think that that is maybe how they're going to move forward in terms of Kiefer Moore having that presence, getting them up the field and... Yeah, some, the ball being able to stick, basically, because every time Wales got it, especially in that first half, they, they just could not get out, really. Do you think that's going to be a, a bit of a, a blueprint for them in the next couple of games? Yeah, I think especially um, today in the game against Iran, like Moore definitely has to start. But against England, I think he'll go with the same uh, forwards with uh, Bale and DJ Daniel James. Maybe he starts Brennan Johnson as well. DJ Daniel James, I love that. <laughs> I've never actually referred to him as that before. Um, right, let's let's cover the the shock uh, the shock wins uh, Saudi Arabia and Japan with with two one wins over Argentina and Germany uh, respectively. Maybe the results haven't actually necessarily been victories, but you could also probably include Canada and Belgium in terms of the the way that both teams set up. In terms of uh, what I want to know is Ahmed, do you think there was anything that was either similar or different in terms of the approach as, as the underdogs here for both Saudi Arabia and Japan? I think it's, it started the same based on a defensive organization. But uh, in the second half, Saudi Arabia continued with the defensive organization and upped their, upped their pressing, which helped their high defensive line, which I, which I thought was great uh, throughout the game. But for Japan, it was um, a tactical attacking tactical switch between halftime. And I think Michael did a great piece on this. Yes, I mean, I thought it was just brilliant. I mean, they they got completely dominated down their down their right flank in the first half, uh, with Raum just pushing forward to become a, a fifth attacker. It reminded me a lot of the way that Germany played against Portugal at the last Euros, and then Moriasu made a you know absolutely transformative switch at the break, which involved taking off Kubo, who's a who's an, a you know attack minded winger. Um, and bringing on Tomiyasu to become a fifth defender. And it just completely transformed the game. Um, first of all, it, it denied Raum that, that freedom um, on the overlap and meant Japan had five at the back. But then it was almost like, you know, a complete tables were turned because it meant that when Japan pushed forward, they were attacking with a, a front five against the, the German back four. And it was a surprise that Germany didn't do what Japan did and moved to back five and then steadily... Moriyasu just brought on more and more attacking players. So initially the wing-backs were Sakai and Nagatomo who were just converted full-backs and not the most adventurous going forward. But by the end they were attacking with a front five that was two really creative number 10s behind three wide forwards. And, you know, you can see for the first goal. And actually they had a very good chance just before the first goal. And both those situations really came just because Japan were getting five men into the box. And, you know, eventually the ball landed for one of them. So, I mean, it was... I don't think we'll see another game in this tournament where there's just such a, a transformative formation change. It, it just completely flipped the game on its head. And I think, as you say, that bravery from Japan to actually go and take the, the game back to, to Germany, I think is, is kind of key there. And Ahmed, that's what I want to ask you, I guess. It feels like the, the underdogs, shall we call them, who have done well against the so-called bigger sides are the ones who have been 
braver out of possession as well as in possession in, in terms of their defensive organization and sort of attacking build-up phase obviously as, as Michael said with Japan with Canada which as we mentioned before were really brave uh, against uh, Belgium even though they did lose you contrast that with Costa Rica who were just so passive is it fair to say that the the underdogs who have done well is because they've been far braver at moments you know sometimes we're talking about just a, a half here but in moments have been really brave in, in the approach play yeah I think it, it's the theme throughout the first round that the underdogs, when they when they were good out of possession in terms of pressing or off ball organization, they had a great game or half. So as you said, Canada, I thought they were the better side, and as Michael said earlier in the pod, they were unlucky um, to lose. Their pressing totally dominated Belgium. Belgium couldn't reach any of their midfielders, whether uh, Witzel, De Bruyne, or Telemans, or even Hazard when he's dropped because Alistair Johnston was man marking him. We've also got Senegal, who despite losing, I thought had a great game of the ball in terms of denying the Netherlands progression through the midfield, through Frankie de Jong or Berghaus. And Tunisia in the first half, I thought, totally limited uh, Denmark. I think Denmark were only dangerous uh, from set pieces, from corners. But other than that, like Tunisia won every, won every ball in the midfield. Isa Laidouni just won three million balls in the midfield. We've got Morocco as well. They didn't give Croatia's midfield the sniff. So neither Brozovic, Kovacic or Modric had any time on the ball. And we saw that Modric had to drop into a right back position just to escape um, the pressure. And actually, it's something that, as Latko Delic said, that it's not good for uh, Croatia when Modric drops this deep. But we saw that he had to drop deep because of the marking from uh, Morocco. All of this shows us that there was a pattern in, in, in the first rounds in terms of mid-blocks and off-ball organization for the underdog teams. So this helped them a lot. Fascinating stuff. I think the pair of you, when I hear you talk about tactics, you just see things on a pitch that I just can't see, especially in real time. So it's always good to hear your insight. I think on the... The note of Japan, I, I must say I have to give a shout out to Ali Maxwell, our host, who has gone out of his way to remind us uh, that he did call it with, with Japan. I read Liam's preview and I just, I just felt something. I can't explain it, I can't describe it. I felt something and I think Japan will spring a surprise here. I think certainly avoiding defeat against one or both of Germany and Spain and I actually think might... I think Germany or Spain might be one of the teams and there's always one that crashes out but I can't choose who. Am I crazy? You did call it, mate, so uh, props to you there. Um, before we, we move on, obviously Japan, such is the nature of tournament football that you don't have much opportunity to uh, accrue many points and so now only two games left for each team. Um, Michael, I'll start with you. Do you think that there's a, a danger of Argentina and Germany not actually progressing through this group now or do you think there's still time for them to to claw it back with the the quality that they have i'd still fancy argentina to get through i don't think they played particularly badly and i think those remaining fixtures they should get enough points from i mean germany that's looking perilous i mean the way that spain played that's their next game um yeah if they if they lose that it's curtains um which i think would be a shock the, you know, there's some teams in this tournament who I wouldn't have been surprised had they gone out in the first round, even though they're amongst the favourites. I mean, France have a reputation sometimes for completely blowing up. But Germany, under Flick, good manager, good squad, I thought, you know, a, a pretty gentle first game. I think that would be a huge shock. But um, yeah, it's the World Cup. We always have a couple. And um, 
yeah, it looks like Germany are in the firing line. Yeah, I, I agree with Michael on Argentina. I saw the Mexico Poland game and I fancy Argentina to win both games, actually. In terms of Spain and Germany, I think Germany will get out. Uh, it's a prediction because I think Spain are a way better side and with Japan probably beating Costa Rica, it will be six points, Japan, six points, Spain, and then Germany with three points if they beat Costa Rica. So I think Germany are in the worst, like from the big sides, Germany are in the worst position right now. Do you like Formula One, but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. So in the final part, I want to discuss some general patterns uh, that we've noticed so far across all the games, some tactical, some not, um, and feel free for you guys to chip in with your own as well. Uh, we'll go fairly quick fire here, but we sort of spoke about it before, I think, that it's been a note on this podcast in, in the past that international football perhaps being a little bit behind club football in terms of style, whether that's talking about pressing, the use of fullbacks, things like that. But Michael, is there anyone aside from Spain that we spoke about before that you might have picked out as someone who plays most like a, a club side? I granted it is just one game so far, but is there any are there any patterns of play or anything that you've seen to suggest that? No, I'm I'm not sure there are really. I mean there's a few sides I've been impressed by in terms of their their cohesion with and without the ball. I thought England were very good in terms of some of their rotations in the wide areas. Um, I actually thought Canada were really impressive, you know, considering the, you know, they've got a couple of decent players, but I mean, they were so much better than Belgium, really. I mean, I thought it was, of all the, of all the games so far this season, that's, uh, sorry, this competition, that's the best example of one, one playing like a team and one playing like individuals. I thought they were really impressive, Canada, and I was quite frustrated by the end that they didn't get anything out of that game. Um, but no, I think some of the, some of the better teams are still, Still warming up. Maybe Portugal, actually. I, I thought in the first half, Portugal, their pressing was, was surprisingly intense. And, um, you know, for a side who, again, have often looked like a collection of individuals rather than a co cohesive unit, um, I thought that first half, more than the second half, when they actually scored three times, there were reasons to be positive about them. Yeah, like Michael, I think England uh, were really good in possession. Not only the rotations, I think Mount overloaded the right side a bit, coming from the left side. Bellingham's run from uh, midfield. We saw that on the goal. Um, also, Maguire's distribution. We saw that on, on the Bellingham goal as well. So I think in possession, England were really good in, in this 4-3-3 shape. And also Canada. I was really impressed with, uh, with Canada in terms of their pressing. It was amazing to watch. And also in the possession game, we saw uh, the left wing back, Alf uh, Alfonso Davis, and the right wing back going actually inside. But they weren't found that much. And on the ball, there were many runners. So whether it's uh, Buchanan, whether it's Junior Hoylet, and the right centre back, Alistair Johnston, actually overloaded a bit. So yeah, really impressed uh, with Canada and it's one of the games I'm looking forward to the next town, their game against Croatia. 
to to use another cliche it felt a little bit like Canada did just kind of run out of steam in the end Um, and on that note Michael you being out there so much talk about the air-conditioned stadiums and things like that I know that it was a a later kickoff with the, the Canada game but have you kind of noticed anything to suggest that fatigue is going to be heightened by by the temperatures out there I don't know. I think I think the answer to this is surprisingly complex because the air conditioning usually is coming out from the stands and we're sitting in the stands and it's often quite chilly. But I think even when it's air conditioned, if you're playing in the sun, if you're playing in direct sun, so that's, you know, obviously the two earlier games, I think that's still going to be quite draining. So certainly the Cameroon-Switzerland game I was at, I thought that was played at a real kind of classic inter, uh, international tournament early game pace I think the difference between the early games and the late games probably is quite significant um, but obviously these days five substitutes you know managers are you know I think they've got a lot of license to change things early um, obviously got a factor tactical factors into that as well but I think I think almost the the key so far the best thing is not necessarily winning by a big margin but winning games early you know, if you go 2-0, 3-0 up within the first half, as England did, Spain did, uh, Ecuador did, if you can just rest legs, you know, by not really playing at full capacity in the second half, I think that's going to have a massive benefit when it comes to the game, what, four or five days later. And speaking of scorelines, we've had four nil-nil draws already. Denmark, Tunisia, Mexico, Poland, Morocco, Croatia and Uruguay, South Korea. I'm trying to think now whether or not those kickoff times might have been a factor in that. I don't know. Um, But four draws in the group stage already is just two off the highest amount during a tournament first group stage and there's still 32 games left. Is there there anything noteworthy or is it just a a quirk of the tournament? Yeah, as as we spoke about the defensive organisations, I think most of the teams uh, in the tournament, especially the ones that didn't score and some of the African teams, they need to improve their game in possession. So they may be off the ball, their mid block is great, they are denying the opponents, but we've seen a couple of African teams who definitely need to improve their possession game if they want to move forward. So we've got Senegal, they didn't have many options other than playing it to Sar. Morocco depended heavily on the wing plays, but it didn't work out really well. Uh, Tunisia the first half were actually good with playing balls in behind uh, the Denmark defense but in the second half they just faded Cameroon as well when Switzerland went ahead and dropped deep they couldn't break them at all and the game was a bit slow as uh, Michael said I think the anomaly is Ghana but I think Portugal dropped a bit in terms of the, the defensive organization and the pressing after 60 minutes so yeah I think Throughout the tournament, and not only the African teams, the the possession game, the attacking game for most of the sides, um, with the exception of the big teams, it needs it needs to be improved. I mean, yeah, we talk about fatigue as well before. We're now playing nearly two hours worth of, of football. Um, Michael, the topic of additional time, uh, we've already seen more than 90 minutes worth of football in stoppage time alone so far. We know that this is something that, that FIFA have spoken about in advance of the tournament. Um, where do you stand on the, the introduction of more stoppage time, upwards of 100 minutes on average? Do you think this is something that you'd like to see more of when we return to club football as well? Kind of. I mean, I don't have a particularly strong view on, on that in general. I think there's a... I mean, people have complained a lot in recent times about time-wasting and that kind of thing. And my slight concern is that if we do move towards this or even a kind of ball-in-play clock, which some people favour 
that actually there becomes license to break up the game and, and people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter about time wasting and going down injured because you're going to get that time back. I don't, for me, the most important thing is not the total amount of time played. It's just having a kind of constant rhythm. And I think games with stoppages in tend to just become quite bitty and scrappy. Um, and, and the other point I'd make, just being in the grounds, is that, you know, as, as anyone who kind of regularly attends football will know, usually if you're in the ground, they display how much stoppage time there will be, but they don't actually run the clock. So the clock just stops on 90 minutes. So you have quite a funny situation. I mean, in that England game, when there was about 15 minutes of stoppage time in the first half, you know, the players and the fans don't know how much of that 15 minutes has been played. So it's kind of another way, in addition to the VAR thing, where, you know, the people in the stadium do end up a little bit in the dark. Yeah, I definitely agree with Michael about the rhythm of the game. And we had a hit uh, at that a couple of years ago with the five substitutions. So I understand the five substitutions in terms of fatigue, players playing uh, 60 to 70 games uh, a season for the big sides and they need to rest. And this helps them. But uh, I think the the five substitution breaks down the rhythm a bit. And adding to that like 10, 8 minutes uh, at added time, I think the game just dies. I would be interested to see the number of goals scored in those added minutes uh, or in, or the XG of uh, of those chances in, in these added minutes at the end of the tournament and if there were any actually. I think as much as anything, it's just throwing the, the per 90 minute stats completely out of the window from a data <laughs> perspective, which I think is just selfish. Um, us data nerds need to get a nice clean number here and they are completely ruining it for us. Now, let's throw it forward. The fun never stops. So many games to still look forward to. We're going to be straight into the, the second round of fixtures starting today. Um, Michael, I'll start with you. Which game across the second round of fixtures are you most looking forward to? I think the best games are the late games in general. I think Argentina-Mexico... Spain versus Germany, and then Portugal versus Uruguay, obviously pitting the best two teams in each group together. You could probably extend that as well to England against USA tonight, which is obviously a, a very big game for the Athletic. Yeah, if I had to pick one, Spain-Germany, because it becomes, you know, from Germany's perspective, it becomes almost knockout football. It's the kind of game that could be a final. Um, so yeah, if I had to pick one, I'd go for that. But Argentina-Mexico are actually a really similar situation. So uh, yeah, I think the second round of games is, is going to be really good. Yeah, like a couple. I think Michael mentioned them all, but I'm interested to see if uh, Saudi Arabia can do it like in 1994 when they went to the round of 16. Um, I'll be different and I'll choose Croatia-Canada. I was really impressed with Canada. And I think if they had the same performance like they did against Belgium, they can actually uh, beat Croatia. Canada very much the uh, the hipster team for everyone uh, in this tournament, I think it's fair to say. Um, so there we have it, our first entry in the World Cup notebook. Plenty more entries to come in the coming days and weeks. Michael, Ahmed, thank you so much for your time. For the latest and most comprehensive World Cup coverage around, including Michael and Ahmed's fantastic tactical breakdowns, of some of the best group games throughout the tournament. Uh, both of them hugely prolific at the moment. There's so much football going on, so much content being created on site. Uh, you can subscribe for just £1 per month for 12 months, uh, our best offer of the year, by going to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. 
Uh, I must also give a shout out to, to Liam Tharm and John Muller, friends of the pod too, working tirelessly to give you guys the best data and tactics insight out there. And of course, so many of our colleagues at The Athletic, uh, leaving no stone unturned on every single football topic. Uh, that's all from us. We'll be back very soon. But in the meantime, thank you as ever for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. <laughs>